Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of The Blacklist, where I, your host, Mariah, discuss the beginnings, lives, and legacies of Black Hollywood stars who are often forgotten, a footnote, or left out of the narrative of Hollywood's beginnings entirely. This new season was inspired by the mini summer series, and particularly the final two episodes on films by the prolific African-American filmmaker Oscar Micheaux. I was inspired by his tenacity and his ability to make the kinds of films he wanted against all odds, and I figured where there's smoke, there's fire. I was right. Last season, we talked about the lives of six black women pioneers on screen. This season, we're exploring the lives of black pioneers off screen. I'm talking about the rise and the fall of the black independent film movement of the early 1900s. This week, we're going to finish our discussion on Birth of a Nation and the revolution that it started. This is going to be a very short episode, but I feel that it was important to break it up because this movie was a lot. So here we go. Jumping right back in. This movie was awful, horrible, racist, awful, awful, awful. It villainized black Southerners and white Northerners, blaming them for the Civil War, then victimized the white Southerners who, I'll remind you, got themselves into a war they then lost. But I guess that's beside the point. This film made the KKK. Yes, the one, the only, the local U.S. terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, the heroes of the story and the innocent white women were the victims of the black brute's wrath. But the worst part of this whole endeavor is the KKK thing. Remember in the first episode of this season, I mentioned that the KKK came about as a forceful way to keep black Southerners from voting, among other things. Basically, it was a way to keep them in line. But with the creation of Jim Crow laws, it became easier for politicians to suppress black people through legal ways, like making it difficult for them to vote, what with those insane and impossible tests, and making it harder for them to receive government aid and housing, and of course, sharecropping, which kept black people in a cycle of debt that was essentially slavery. The Reconstruction era was absolutely not this reversal of fortune for white people that D.W. Griffith made it out to be. Let's not even begin to talk about all the Civil War inaccuracies that this film portrayed, like the North being the first aggressor in the war with President Lincoln sending 75,000 volunteers to help enforce the new emancipation laws, because we all know that it was the South who attacked Fort Sumter first in 1861. Thank you very much. However, the worst part of this endeavor was the men that it empowered. Men like William Joseph Simmons a preacher who, in a ceremony at the top of Stone Mountain in Atlanta in 1915, revived the Ku Klux Klan, who had all but gone away. They suddenly saw a resurgence and felt empowered enough to return to public life. An excerpt from the Atlanta Constitution, printed on November 28, 1915, reads, Impressive services of the last week were those conducted on the night of Thanksgiving at the top of Stone Mountain. The exercises were held by 15 Klansmen who gathered at the behest of their chieftain, W.J. Simmons, and marked the foundation of the Invisible Empire Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. The new 
secret organization is founded with a view of taking an active view with the betterment of mankind, according to a statement from one of its members who are known as Klansmen. This shit spread like wildfire. People started selling KKK merch. Kids started dressing like Klansmen for Halloween. They were celebrating criminals, which... I guess, is the most American thing I can think of. Suddenly, a film called The Most Ambitious Cinematic Venture of All Time has emboldened racists, and people are still praising it, praising its innovations and heralding D.W. Griffith as some sort of genius hero savior of cinema. It's disgusting. And while I am aware of the innovations that D.W. Griffith utilized and popularized, I do not wish to talk about any of the positives of this film because that is not why I'm here. Now, there were some people with sense. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, was one organization that railed against this travesty with everything they had. They traveled to different cities to protest the film at its premieres. They pleaded with the censors to ban this film, but with the film review boards being made up of mostly white men, their concerns were brushed aside. They used their resources to publish educational material to dispel the film's myths and to properly educate people on the subjects that D.W. Griffith was so recklessly misleading people on. On April 17, 1915, NAACP Secretary Mary Childs Nimi wrote to NAACP Executive Committee member George Packard, saying, I am utterly disgusted with the situation in regards to the birth of a nation. Kindly remember that we have put six weeks of constant effort of this thing and have gotten nowhere. They were all incredibly frustrated that no one else seemed to want to stop this film as badly as they did. Eventually, their national protests resulted in several cities and three whole states banning the film in fear of it negatively affecting their black populations. D.W. Griffith and Thomas Dixon, the author of the novel, responded to this national movement against their film by saying that the only reason black men disliked the film was because they wanted to have sex with white women and the film depicted miscegenation as evil. Anyway, the NAACP actually really got under D.W. Griffith's skin because of the national attention they were getting surrounding their protests, because he started to spiral, writing all kinds of letters to the press, calling the NAACP the Negro Intermarriage Society and calling his critics censors of unpopular opinion and releasing racist propaganda, encouraging Americans to see the film because it was unpopular. The film was one of the first films screened at the White House for the then-president, Woodrow Wilson, several important cabinet members, and all nine Supreme Court justices. Yeah, really unpopular, Griffith. Despite the NAACP's best, and in some cases, extremely successful efforts, This film went on to be the highest-grossing film of all time until 1939, when another Reconstruction historical romance took that title. But despite its disgusting racism, and despite the protests against it, and despite the facts being so blatantly ignored for the sake of racism for over 20 years, this film, again, held the title for highest-grossing film of all time. Black people were furious, to say the least. 
the Klan was back with a vengeance, and now the most popular and the furthest reaching American art form was telling people far and wide that black people were stupid, animalistic, alcoholic, power-hungry, rapists, murderers, unable to govern themselves, seeking to overthrow the white way of life. And there was little to nothing that black people could do to dispel these myths because there were no narratives to counter this film. There were barely any narratives at all, and the ones that did exist were the caricatures that black people have been fighting against forever. The only door into black life was through a white lens from a white pen through a white person's gaze. This film was the straw that broke the camel's back. We needed to fight back. America needed to know that black life contained multitudes. And in the words of the wise Shirley Chisholm, if they won't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Enter Emmett J. Scott, William Foster, George and Noble Johnson, all black pioneers and some of the first men to start the first black film production companies. Next week, we'll dive into the work of these men. Until then, 